At the end of every NFL season, there is a group in Kansas City which hosts something called the 101 Awards Banquet. It is a formal dinner and awards presentation celebrating the top NFL players and coaches from the just-completed season. When I was 17 years old, one Saturday, uh, my mom gets a phone call from one of my uncles. He has two tickets to the 101 Awards Banquet. And at the last minute, neither my aunt nor any of my cousins could go, so he called to see if I was free. Thankfully, I was, and when it was explained to me who would be at the banquet, I readily accepted. But there was one catch. I needed to wear a tuxedo. Obviously not something I owned. I don't even think I'd I'd worn one before. But thankfully, my mom uh, promptly told me to get in the car and drove to a tuxedo rental place, and they had something that was relatively inexpensive and in my size. I was able to go and I had a great time. Now, I thought about the 101 banquet when I was reflecting on our gospel today. You see, it wasn't enough that I accepted my uncle's invitation. No, it was a formal dinner. And so I needed to act. Uh, I needed to act to get formal attire, to wear formal attire. Likewise, in our gospel, Jesus gives us the parable of the wedding feast. And in this parable, we see that God offers us the greatest of invitations Again, though, it's not enough to merely accept this invitation. We must act upon it. We must be properly clothed in a wedding garment. We'll talk about what that wedding garment means in a minute, but first I just wanted to point out the similarities with last week's gospel. You know, uh, last week we had a parable that had a very obvious historical interpretation, uh, the parable of the wicked tenants about the religious leaders in Jerusalem, their rejection of Christ. The same thing is going on here. Um, those who reject the invitation of the king to the wedding feast are the religious leaders in Jerusalem, those who most, uh, are those who are in the best position to recognize Christ as the Messiah. Um, But again, like last week, the historical interpretation does not exhaust the meaning of the parable. This is the word of God, and there is always, always a greater depth, uh, greater riches of meaning for us to uncover. What this parable also teaches us about is about Christ's invitation to all of us. Christ's invitation, and that key word there is invite, right? God requests that we share in his eternal wedding banquet, uh, in the eternal wedding banquet that is the kingdom of God, which begins in this life and, and will be experienced in its fullness in the next. He invites, he requests us to the greatest of banquets, Yet still, it is truly an invitation. He respects our freedom. Instead of forcing us, um, he merely invites. The response is up to us. We can accept or reject. But this parable serves as something of a warning against uh, rejecting and a guide for rejecting this invitation and a guide for how we ought to respond. So let's, let's look at these various responses. First, there are those who ignored the invitation and went away, one to his farm and another to his business. This response can be seen as a warning against responding with indifference to the invitation to enter God's kingdom, thinking we are too busy or have more important things to do. Then there is the second response, those who mistreated and killed the servants. And we can read it as a warning against responding to Christ's invitation with indignation, with hostility, with an offended who-do-you-think-you-are attitude. To accept Christ's invitation is to acknowledge that we are sinners in need of God's mercy. To accept Christ's invitation is to acknowledge that we aren't the rule and measure of reality, that we don't determine for ourselves what is good and evil, but God does. 
There are many today, sadly, who react, uh, re- respond to Christ's invitation with indifference or indignation indignation and hostility. The third response is the man who shows up without the wedding garment. And and this response is a warning against an incomplete repentance, an incomplete conversion, right? Uh, The man without the wedding garment uh, represents those of us who have accepted the invitation of Christ, which comes through the church and the sacraments, but his yes to Christ was not carried through with how he lived his life. The man without the wedding garment wanted the good things of the kingdom, but he didn't want to break with his sinful ways. He wanted the crown without the cross. The man without the wedding garment is someone who listens to the word of God, the words of Jesus, but doesn't act, doesn't build his life upon the firm rock of Jesus Christ. Finally, we have those who accept the invitation and are wearing the wedding garment. The wedding garment stands for righteousness and holiness something we can't produce ourselves, uh, something that Christ gives to us by his sanctifying grace, grace that we receive uh, first in baptism and is nourished in the Eucharist, um, is fostered by a prayer life, right? The idea of the wedding garment as righteousness or holiness, it calls to mind St. Paul's exhortation to cast off the old man of sin and put on the new man of Christ. Uh, The one who accepts the invitation as wearing the wedding garment is one who strives to make Christ the very cornerstone of his life, who tries to learn and live out the teachings of the church, who tries to treat others with love and respect, who frequents the sacraments. This parable tells us it isn't enough merely to accept Christ's invitation. We must act by by accepting and clothing ourselves in the garments of true repentance and holiness. Again, though, there is more to this parable still. We can see Um, we can see an invitation, God's invitation to accept his moral law, the teachings of Christ and his church, uh, because the same dynamic is at work there. God invites us to accept the truth of a moral teaching, and then we either accept it or reject it. But if we accept it, it's not enough to just give lip service to it. We must act upon it. Let me give a more concrete example. Hopefully it'll be clear. Recently, the United States Uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops once again identified the protection of unborn children as the preeminent moral priority when we are considering how to vote. The bishop said, quote, the threat of abortion remains our preeminent priority because it directly attacks life itself, because it takes place within the sanctuary of the family, and because of the number of lives destroyed, end quote. There are, of course, other grave evils facing society, but abortion remains the preeminent priority. And many react to this simple moral truth with outright hostility, others with indifference. Then there are those, like the one showing up without a wedding garment, who give lip service and nothing more to the pro-life cause. The church's moral teaching is always an invitation we are called to freely accept, because it is true and good. But it isn't enough to just accept the church's teaching. We must act upon it. And for most of us, that means voting. You know, four years ago, Archbishop Nauman reminded us that life is full of imperfect choices and that we need to discern which candidate might do the least damage and which candidates, despite their weaknesses, has the potential to do the most good for our nation and world. Archbishop also pointed out that when we elect presidents, and to a lesser extent when we elect senators, we also pick judges, judges who have so much power in this day and age. We don't have perfect candidates. We never have, uh, especially 
so in this presidential election. However, I would be remiss. I wouldn't be doing my job, and I would be doing everyone a great disservice if I didn't point out that one of the candidates for president, Joe Biden, is a Catholic, presents himself as such, yet shamefully, he is running on a radically pro-abortion platform. Moreover, his running mate, Senator Harris, um, has called the Knights of Columbus an extremist group because of their pro-life beliefs. The protection of unborn children is the preeminent moral priority, and Biden's platform wants to enshrine abortion as the law of the land. The choice is ours. We can accept the church's teaching and act upon it or not. But regardless of what happens this election day, we are a people of hope, for we know that in the end, life will be victorious. For God is victorious in the end. He invites us to share in this victory, the victory of life over death. The question is, will we accept this invitation and act upon it?